0: You're listening to the Transforming Chaplaincy Podcast. I'm Michael Skaggs, Communications Director for Transforming Chaplaincy. On this episode of the podcast, we present an interview between a Transforming Chaplaincy Fellow and a researcher in the field. Reverend Dirk Labouchain is currently working on an MPH in Epidemiology from the University of Illinois at Chicago. He explores how targeted chaplaincy interventions can be formulated based on a better understanding of patient spiritual processes. Dirk interviews Doug Oman, who is a professor in the School of Public Health at the University of California, Berkeley. They discuss Doug's new book, Why Religion and Spirituality Matter for Public Health, Evidence, Implications, and Resources, published by Springer and out now.
1: Thank you for your uh, time and willingness to speak with us about the book. Um, so the book's name is Why Religion and Spirituality Matter for Public Health, the Evidence, uh, Implications, and Resources. So you were the editor of the book, and then you authored or co-authored most of the, the chapters in it as well. So this is a great or, opportunity
2: to, Or uh, To be more precise, most of the evidence-focused chapters, though there were Uh, other chapters on implications and on teaching that were authored by many others.
1: That's right. Well, you're giving credit where credit uh, is deserved, so thank you for that. Um, So how about we start by you telling us a little more about yourself, uh, your background, and uh, uh, your current focus?
2: Um, Well, um, I... um, I uh, grew up here in California actually in Berkeley and uh, got uh, interested in spirituality and religion uh early on um in, in my life and then uh when I was uh, in a graduate program in, in graduate school in uh, public health I was actually getting a uh, biostatistics doctorate um a uh, a chance came along to do some research on spirituality and religion and their health implications at that time. And uh, I was just uh, working uh, as a graduate student in, uh, helping uh, an epidemiology unit crunch numbers. And um, I said, hey, uh, we ought to. Uh, we ought to respond to this uh, uh, request for proposals to study spirituality and religion in our cohort. And the uh, principal investigators said, um, well, uh, that's a good idea, but we're too busy, but you could do it. Uh, (laughs) I said, but I'm the statistician. And uh, they said, uh, well, um, uh, you, uh, um, uh, you can do it. You should do it. We'll back you up. And so that began a, a career, a gradual career move. I didn't realize it was happening until it was well underway of shifting from biostats to being uh, really a full-time uh, focused on uh, spirituality and health as my research area in, uh, in within public health. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it led to quite a number of things. That first little investigation somehow just serendipitously uh, led to a, a paper in the American Journal of Public Health uh, on mortality. It was one of the studies that uh, helped uh, link spiritual and religious factors to a uh, greater length of life. And so that was just a serendipitous, but I guess maybe it was the universe confirming that I should be moving in that direction or something. Anyway, um, Yeah, so I've done um, a variety of things, epidemiology studies, uh, randomized trials, but then all this time uh, noticed that there wasn't, um, uh, that in contrast to some other fields such as psychology and medicine, that the field of public health wasn't sort of uh taking the ball and going with it there weren't uh, in terms of spirituality and religion and health there weren't um a lot of books coming out like in psychology there weren't curriculum offerings at uh, most uh, schools of public health uh, comparable to what was happening in uh, medicine so uh I realized, uh, you know, in consultation with colleagues, well, we should try to do something about that. And that eventually led then to this book. And uh, uh, I have a collaboration uh, on it from quite a number of my colleagues at Berkeley, but I was the one who had the real um, familiarity with the research literature. On spiritual. So I ended up being the first author on the evidence focused chapters, uh, though many of them uh, were on as co authors in various uh, chapters to help make sure that what we were saying, you know, say, for example, on uh, spirituality and religion and infectious diseases, making sure that that, uh, we were talking about it in a manner that made sense for somebody who worked in a laboratory in a school of public health all the time studying infectious diseases there, that, that sort of thing. So that's a long answer to a, a short question.
1: <laughs> no, uh, no, that's that's going to lead us into some of the, the questions I wanted to ask you. Before we kind of jump in to the book, though, where you're kind of leading more towards, would you care to share a little bit about what kind of sparked, uh, you mentioned, s- some interest in religion and spirituality quite early on.
2: Yeah, um well, um I actually uh, grew up um uh, in Berkeley. My uh my family uh were had um my parents had been raised religious but had uh, had, had sort of lost interest in it. Uh, but um uh I uh, I was exposed to uh, some very you know when I was in college I was exposed to some people that uh, um, got me interested in it um, uh, and uh, I began to be more in, personally involved. So uh, I uh, and uh, I would hear a lot of talk in uh, in religious spiritual traditions of of this having health implications you know based on uh based on understandings of of how things should work that were there embedded in the traditions not not always scientifically verified but just you know traditional teachings in part and observation in part and uh so i i'd had that just as an interest um there is something like well wouldn't that be interesting or, you know and and of course the uh, the uh, popular media then uh, when some study comes out uh linking uh religion or spirituality to health, they'll often pick up on it you know get uh wide wide media play so i think there's just a sort of a general interest in a significant segment of the public of whom I was a part. Uh, But then, um, lo and behold, I was also in a position to do some research on it, uh, do
1: some work on it, so. When you kind of started sharing about your background and how you uh, kind of came to writing this book, you mentioned that you noticed this kind of maybe discrepancy between other fields such as nursing or psychology, kind of almost eagerly investigating spirituality and religion. But then in, in public health, uh, despite this kind of, as you call it, like an enormous body of empirical evidence showing that religion and spirituality is in, of interest or should be of mm-hmm. interest in public health, uh, yet it's not really investigated. Oh, what is your sense of why that is? Why, why is public health kind of behind or um, interested?
2: Yeah, well, it... <laughs> I don't think it was always behind Um, it. um, I mean, when I started, uh, maybe those different fields were fairly much on an equal footing in the sense that uh, I really started being active in the late 1990s. And that's when the first uh, real book in psychology started coming out. It was an edited book. I think the uh, medical schools were just starting to catch wind of it, and at that time too, uh, uh, the field of public health, uh, the American Journal of Public Health, published uh, a few influential epidemiology studies, uh, and it also and the Annual Review of Public Health um, also published a review article by Linda Chatters. Uh, but um, then as uh, You know, as 10, 15 years went by, it seemed like these other fields had done a lot more. And I think, uh, I don't have any clear sense of why that could be. Uh, It may be that on the practice level, uh, it it was just obvious that uh, public health needed to do partnering with religious communities, but then the evidence beyond that, Actually, linking engagement uh, with with health outcomes—I don't know. Maybe maybe that uh, seemed secondary, or um, maybe it was just uh, more difficult looking at something uh, on a um, on a community level. It's it's harder to think about it than on an individual level, um, mm-hmm. or I don't know. There could be a variety of different things. I mean, it's probably point. I don't, I mean, I guess there's some point in speculating in as much as maybe we give insights on how to change, but it seems like a lot of the steps that change are still the same to try to bring the uh, evidence to the attention of the field and then try to uh, show ways that it could uh, make a difference in practice, that sort of thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is kind of hard to find like an exact. And so on that I, I know what, one of the things that were kind of interesting to me is um you mentioned this secular, uh, secularization theory uh the the this kind of idea that in a way we should not really bring religion and spirituality as much into research and somehow in public health that kind of stuck that was kind of interesting i haven't i haven't heard that yeah um, before
2: yeah I think uh, people uh senior level academics uh across many different fields when they were going to school maybe back in the 1960s were um, there was a view at that time the secularization theory that religion would just be fading away and get replaced by science hmm. and that that didn't happen but you know that uh, for many people now in senior positions or well Maybe now more in emeritus positions, but still influential. That was the uh, that was uh, uh, the impression they got at a very formative time in their lives, at a formative time in their training. So that uh, might have been somehow common se- or what did say assimilated as the common sense view, even though it wasn't exactly you know uh, well. <laughs> Turned out not to be so true after all, but you know. But if that's your you know, what you assimilated early, then it just seems like it should be true, even if it isn't. Mm-hmm. But maybe a- if you're a clinician, maybe you have more chances to see it close up. Maybe if you're a psychologist or a, a physician, maybe you have more chances to see see pe- how people draw on it, how individuals draw on it. Whereas public health professionals, many of them wouldn't. At, at, at these times, they're no longer clinicians. Maybe back fifty years ago, most uh, public health professionals would have received prior training as physicians, but that's certainly no longer the case. Hasn't been the case for quite a while now.
1: Right. Uh, so we kind of touched upon the the aim of this book. You know, the need as you um, as you speak to it for public health as a field to be introduced or um, engaged with this evidence that's out there uh, with that being said who, who do you hope read this book and engage with this book yeah. and yeah.
2: we hope that uh, both researchers and practitioners and students oh. and policymakers we hope uh, basically everybody will read it because uh, we've you know we've tried to incorporate sections addressing all of those needs the uh, for researchers that especially relevant that first part on the evidence though that's also relevant to others and then practitioners we have some key chapters there in part two, and then for teachers uh, there's part three with several different examples of how you could do courses,
1: yeah, so I you kind of mentioned the different parts in the book um so the like you said the first one is the kind of evidence base. i mean it's it's called evidence base, and uh it kind of connects i think it's like about 12 different topics with religion and spirituality and this um really ranges kind of across the board like uh, morbidity mortality social identity and discrimination uh, you mentioned infectious diseases uh, nutrition health policy so um, this might be a little challenging to do, but are, are there some of these top topics where um, the evidence to you is particularly compelling or um, some of those topics where you're um, quite excited about the findings there?
2: I mean, I think uh, the evidence uh, taken all together is very compelling that it does make a difference, as in that title, that In fact, we discuss the issues of causality in one final chapter there on weighing the evidence. And I was um, excited, so to speak, to uh, put that chapter together because it was really very impressive how many uh, reviews uh, have already been conducted of the literature. This is, you know, uh, it you know, more than a 100 systematic reviews, and uh, many of them finding these significant relationships that really do argue for causality, but it's not that it's uh, always beneficial. There do seem to be some cases when uh, people using methods of coping that may actually undermine their health uh, or other things, although it seems like most of the time on the individual level, it is uh, beneficial and um, so i was I was excited to have the chance to uh, get the help get the word out. I hope the word gets out that there's just been so much uh, i mean we just have massive amounts of evidence now and and large numbers of people have been reviewing it and piecing it together and it's it's really I don't see how one can seriously argue that it it doesn't make a difference. I mean it's not it's not like we need more evidence. The evidence is already there. We just need to be aware of it. So I was um felt privileged to be able to do that and then you know the for many years people have been noticing that uh the evidence is particularly compelling with regard to mortality uh and which is an objective outcome, so um, and uh, we covered that in the chapter on mortality. Um, but I guess I was um, uh, in some ways the um, I, I mean I, I felt like uh, we learned something from virtually every chapter, but in some ways it was the ones that were on topics most distinctive to public health. Where I felt like I, I learned the most, and those would be on the the social epidemiology ones, uh, or social factors, and ones on discrimination. Uh, also, the ones on environment that uh, environmental health that seemed to be uh, distinctive to public health that would not have been addressed so much by by medicine or psychology, and. Uh, so I felt like there was uh, a lot of emerging evidence there. It was a slightly more complex picture, but but hey, that's that's what happens when you get into real data is that it right. it's not quite as simple. Uh, but uh, I felt like it was again, it was uh, compelling that it was important. So um, those are two of the things that that come to mind as being. Be particularly important or compelling.
1: Yeah, I was also kind of surprised when I said I was like, "Oh, religion and how for um, environmental studies like that is that is quite surprising uh, to look into that." I, you you mentioned the when when we start reporting the findings to be uh, the importance of not just reporting how. Uh, religion and spirituality can be ben- beneficial, but also some of those areas to uh, where there's some findings—not um, the majority, as you say—but some findings about how um, it could be detrimental or sometimes not as helpful. Um, mm-hmm. um, could you say a little more about that? The I guess the um, the importance of being consistent in in reporting. Um, um,
2: yeah.
1: Um, Well, uh, in
2: terms of the negative findings, uh, one thing that does uh, come to mind, psychologists have done a lot of work in studying what is now commonly called religious struggles or spiritual struggles, where people may feel a certain uh, conflict in their life that is related to religion or spirituality in some way. And, of course, I would imagine that chaplains might be people in a place to make a difference, that to help with those struggles, to help them get resolved, uh, so to speak, in a favorable way. Uh, but there are uh, examples of religious studies. that can be uh, intrapersonal, where someone is just really anguished maybe over what they believe. It could be interpersonal, maybe conflicts within congregations or um or um, could be uh, about some people feeling like they're wrestling with God, so to speak, and um, uh, so uh, there's a fair bit of the empirical work talking about how this this uh, this experience does seem to be related to poorer outcomes mm-hmm. um, and so um, I think, uh, I mean, it, uh, I think our job is not to be cheerleaders, so to speak. Uh, as scientists, our job is not to be cheerleaders, that we need to be uh, reporting both sides of it. And if we don't report the negative sides, then we would be justly criticized. Uh, and I think, in particular, you know, in our society with its various kinds of cultural conflicts or cultural wars i think uh, religion uh, sometimes gets uh, um, brought into those Uh, so i think it's particularly important to um, to try to um, give credit where credit's due on both sides and i've been gratified sometimes when my my students who've who've read some of these chapters say uh, that they thought it was a balanced view, right? Because uh, I think because at Berkeley we get students, uh, I think uh, you know for the most part quite uh, wi- willing to listen to or willing to be, should I should say, adhere to the scientific, um, you know, be, adopt a scientist hat and listen to evidence. But, you know, there are sort of inclinations uh, uh, can be on different sides of contemporary uh, cultural conflicts, too. So it's it's gratifying to feel that maybe in that case, science has been offering sort of a common ground to where they um, um, they could, you know, they could say, well, okay credit needs to be given where credit is due and that 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 sort of thing.
1: Yeah, I I would think that um the field of public health would be kind of especially uh sensitive to a group that comes in with an agenda and, and doesn't do so responsible or doesn't report their findings responsibly and with integrity of saying both the kind of helpful findings but about religion, but also some of the things that are more unhelpful.
2: I uh yeah, I g uh, my guess would be that But that's right. I haven't um, experimented with doing that myself, but yeah, but my, but my uh, students sometimes do, uh, yeah, sometimes they'll be criticizing particular readings that we do in class as being, well, it seemed like they weren't balanced as they should be or whatever. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think, yeah,
1: I agree. Right, and the, um, and just to mention, I think uh, just, there's the part two in the book where um, you engage with the the um, application or or the uh, what's the impact of it of it. Um, Im- what do we do? Implications with-
2: or whatever in- implications for interventions.
1: Mm-hmm. Right, and and um, for for chaplains who do spiritual assessment, knowing. Some of these things that come up that are um, ultimately unhelpful for people as they cope with religion, that's something that we can use very practically and being sensitive to, like you mentioned, voicing struggles uh, with God or struggles in faith as something that we assess and want to pay particularly attention to as we support patients and their families in the hospital setting.
2: Yes, yes. I was pleased in putting the book together to see that there would now been enough research on chaplaincy that I saw one of the, one of the systematic reviews, or maybe it was even a meta-analysis had been done on, on chaplaincy care. And, uh, uh, and it's pleasing to see that. I mean, I'm I'm, uh, uh, help, help you all keep on the map, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure uh, what uh, chaplains do, you, you must uh, need to, be aware of so many different things going on that there's a tremendous amount of art to it that could, you know, you couldn't ever, or it would be difficult to boil it all down to, you know, well, we had this one uh, 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 manualized intervention that we did. Well, maybe occasionally you could do that, but for most of it, I'm sure that you're, you what you need is this big picture. Of all the the many different factors going on, I I hope the book has managed to, I should say, um, offer uh, to inform such a big picture. Uh, Of course, there's there's many things that would not be in the the book too. In fact, uh, um, when I originally um, was coming up with the content for the book, I had sort of hoped to have. A description, a more, I should say, a more evocative, uh, partly qualitative description of the many different kinds of coping methods that people would use across lots of different traditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the uh, the series editors were concerned that that was uh, it was sort of a anyway that it, it wasn't conceptualized. Uh, in a way that they felt uh, comfortable with that so i i've uh, so that didn't actually make it into the book, which maybe is good because the book is already fairly long but uh, uh, that strikes me uh, as those kinds of you you would also need in addition to the all the uh, great amount of kind of quantitative evidence and, and, you know there's so much more qualitative evidence that. I'm sure chaplains would be needing regularly Mm -hmm. to draw on.
1: Yeah, that that sounds very interesting. Are you perhaps thinking of publishing it elsewhere? Oh, maybe not.
2: um, Well, I haven't been actively thinking of it, but uh, who knows? Maybe, uh, I mean, there's a reading that I already do Uh, assign, and I think we cited this some in the book, of a paper by uh, Pargament a number of years ago, Pargament, Paloma, and Tarakeshwar, where they uh, discuss religious coping in three different traditions and sort of give examples, and I I often assign that. I I probably mention that in my chapter on my own teaching. I assign that, uh, and uh, I think it helps students uh, understand what what uh the notion of religious coping is all about and uh yeah if i uh yeah uh, uh, yeah it's we tried to be one-stop shopping uh, but i guess there the field itself is just too broad for us to to truly make that happen but right. but we try to um, tried to be that as much as we could
1: oh yeah definitely I, um but yeah, and I think this this book will definitely be very helpful in um in giving us uh, the readers a way to kind of start off uh with like you said, with the field being so broad, it's sometimes hard to kind of find an entry point, so this would definitely provide it for for the readers uh yeah, you mentioned your students a little earlier, so um I know that the third part of the book um, discusses the implications for education, um, especially uh, of public health professionals. Um, and so you've been teaching your class at UC Berkeley at the School of Public Health since 2009, is that right? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: And
1: the class is called uh, Public Health and Spirituality. Yes. Uh, so you mentioned in the book that it draws uh, a median of 14 students per year. Uh, so I was I was wondering if um, you would say there's been kind of a, a growth in the interest for the class, or does it kind of wax and wane? Yeah.
2: Um, there, um, the last few years there's been that median of 14 the first uh, five years or so i think the numbers were lower maybe i don't know somewhere around 10 i think maybe one year or maybe only eight um and i think uh, partly well um partly that may have been because uh, it started out as a one unit course and then when it got to be a two unit course, um, I think that made it easier for the graduate students because they had, I think they had requirements for certain numbers of units. Whereas the undergraduates, I think, usually had long since satisfied many of their units. And so they weren't on as, quite as tight a schedule. So all the way through, I think every single year, there have been both. Undergraduates and graduates. Uh, Berkeley does have an undergraduate public health major as well as MPH programs, uh, PhD, DRPH programs. Uh, so I think that extra unit did make a difference uh, for the for the graduate students in particular. Uh, and uh, but also there there seems to be more kind of uh, just general. Recognition. It it feels less. I mean, I think students are still. Um, um, they still have a great deal to learn, but it it doesn't feel quite as uh, pioneering and out of the box as it used to be. It feels. It's felt uh, somewhat, somewhat more mainstream, but mm. but they're still saying they're still saying why haven't we heard more about this? But it it doesn't feel quite as uh, maybe controversial or something. I think partly, uh, partly, uh, although our society still has culture wars, I think maybe religion has been uh, not viewed as quite as central to that. I mean, maybe some of the um consequences but religion itself anyway i don't know that's uh that's just my general impression of it
1: <laughs> right. uh yeah so with with all the challenges like you mentioned like you know students having to fit in certain credits and busy schedules and all of that um what is your sense of why students choose to take the course
2: Um. Seems like a wide variety, but I think usually it's some kind of a personal interest. You know, maybe maybe they're religious, uh, or maybe their families, or they they've just seen that it's important for somebody. Um, um, yeah, so they have some kind of interest in the topic, though. Though you know, some people say, "Well, I'm you know, I'm atheist, but." you know, uh, but they were interested, you know, uh, so, um, yeah, it's a wide variety of reasons. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I remember with our class too, with the second cohort of chaplains, there were, um, I think three or four students who were not part of the cohort, but also chose to take the class. And, um, and it was also, like you said, it's kind of a, a spectrum, but some, some kind of Personal interests, either maybe they were um, majored in religious studies during the undergrad or some sense of uh, wanting to pursue that, that further. Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, so far nobody has said, well, it was a requirement because it's still an elective, though. Right. Uh, though, yeah, and it, I've thought about that issue, and my sense is that in most Public health degree programs they 're just so much that they need to be covered that it probably shouldn 't be a requirement uh for somebody to get their degree, but that on the other hand, there should be a more consistent effort to integrate it across the curriculum, so there should probably be i don 't know what a a full lecture or something in a social epidemiology course, and it should probably get mentioned in all these other, uh, in many other different degree programs. It should probably get mentioned various places in uh, health policy and management coursework and mentioned, um, you know, maybe, maybe uh 10 minutes worth of mentioning in the, uh, laboratory courses, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then in that case, uh, uh, word would be getting out there. People would be hearing about it from many different directions. And then as now, those who are the most interested could then come and take a dedicated course. And, and, uh, that I think I, I put out that vision in the, uh, one of the chapters introducing the teaching section, and so far, I don't think I've heard anybody really argue against that vision of how it should be. So, so um, I don't know if silence means agreement, but anyway, those are those are my thoughts, and my my hope would be that maybe maybe now this book can help provoke that kind of discussion of well, how should we be teaching about this, and and uh, what reason... This book maybe is a good start for resources. What other resources do we need?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, that would be my hope as well to kind of get the conversation going, um, while offering some um, great suggestions of how it could be done. Like you mentioned with your vision for it, but also the examples of um, other major schools in this in the um, in the country who've done so already.
2: Uh. Yeah, and then um yeah it'd be good to be able to compare notes. I think each of those fields has something special to add. And you and uh uh I'm not sure exactly the most distinctive things that happen in the chaplaincy programs too, but maybe uh uh I think the more fields the better. And then we can we can all be thinking, well, which are the most distinctive things that each of us offer and 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 uh, uh, it seems like on many different levels, it's a it's a case of it should be everybody's business, but everybody thinking about it and making their own distinctive contributions too. Right,
1: right. Uh, well, kind of a, along the same lines, there. Uh, I was thinking if in in about ten years' time, uh, if you would look back um, at the la- the previous ten years and what has happened since. Uh, the book came out. Uh, what would be some things that you would like to have seen for you to feel satisfied with uh, with developments in the field
2: hmm. um, well uh, I guess um, more teaching of uh, of the field in many different um, schools of public health and programs of public health and um, you know, uh, be gratified, uh, if the book, I mean, I would think the book would be a tremendous resource for that.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and that, uh, yeah, actually it would be great if there could be enough new developments of all kinds that a second revised edition that, that includes all the new developments should be, uh, should be, uh, published. Yeah. Uh, there would be a need for that. Um, and um, uh, research, too, I think uh, the NIH, um, uh, my, I mean, th- this is a whole, whole kettle of worms, a whole thing to talk about. But about uh, 15, 20 years ago, the NIH did put out a couple of uh, funding requests for proposals on explicitly spiritual or religious topics. One was on spirituality and alcoholism. But I think the NIH should be funding this, funding the whole field. Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, uh, I think uh, the program, NIH program officers, uh, even if there are a lot of reviewers, and, you know, if you get five reviewers on a grant proposal, maybe one of them would would have a bias because they, you know, or of some kind they'd say something really negative because uh, they just don't understand their bias, but the program officers should mitigate against that and help mm. develop requests for a special proposal, you know, special requests for proposals. And, and I hope that this, uh, the book can be a resource for the NIH moving in that direction and doing uh, what I what i would argue is just really it's job given i mean how can you be not funding work in a field with more than 100 systematic reviews and more more than 3000 i guess would be now or probably well over 4000 um mm-hmm. empirical studies how can you not be funding that there's uh, there is something something is has been missing there. And we, we ought to get back and start doing what it, we should be doing uh, on that federal level, mm-hmm. uh, which, of course, I think would help chaplains and many others, too.
1: Great. That, um, I think if in, in 10 years time all of that would happen, that would, that would, be, that would be great. I want to be mindful of the time. Um, we're kind of running towards the end of the hour that you uh, were so gracious to uh, give us. Um, is there anything else, as we kind of close, that you uh, want to share with the book or, um, or share with the audience, uh, share about the book, sorry, or uh, with the audience before we go? Um,
2: well, um... I would encourage uh, any listener. well, I guess most of your listeners are likely to be chaplains. I was going to say, um, get the book reviewed, because I think that's one way to get the book and by extension, the field, uh, uh, get more awareness of it, uh, uh, get a review published in a different journal. I mean, all all fields kind of have access to each other's writings now through the Internet, makes it easy. And, um, you know, even if there's a review or two that get published in chaplaincy journals, maybe, maybe if you're a chaplain and you know people in some other field to where it's relevant, and I would ask, to what field isn't it relevant? Right. You know, maybe, uh, in many subfields of public health or medicine, uh, get people uh, publishing reviews. Mm-hmm. And uh, then that will help get the field and the book out there.
1: Yeah. And
2: I don't think it will uh I don't get additional royalties, so I say that with total detachment. <laughs>
1: Great. I, I, I would encourage with you, uh any readers out there, let's let's make that happen. Mm. Well I want to thank you for your time. Uh, This has been uh, very interesting. And um, thank you for uh, your contribution to the field. As we said, this is going to be especially beneficial to uh, chaplains as well. Um, And thank you for spending this time.
0: My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Transforming Chaplaincy podcast, where Transforming Chaplaincy fellow Dirk Labuschagne interviewed Professor Doug Oman, of the School of Public Health at the University of California, Berkeley. Transforming Chaplaincy is supported by the John Templeton Foundation and promotes research literacy for improved patient outcomes. For more information, visit us online at transformchaplaincy.org, find us on Twitter at transformchap1, or on Facebook at facebook.com transformingchaplaincy. We invite all of our listeners to check out the Spiritual Care Podcast. With humankind host David Freudberg. You'll hear stories of caregivers providing spiritual support for people in need and often in distress. These caregivers offer a sympathetic, non judgmental ear to people encountering times of challenge, unease, and sometimes loss of meaning. The podcast explores the skills they bring to the profound act of listening. Find the Spiritual Care Podcast on iTunes or another podcatcher and learn more at thespiritualcarepodcast.org.